Here we go. We're moving on. You guys ready to get into scripture? Let's do this. Take out your Bibles. If you don't have one, please raise your hand and we will bring Bibles right to where you're at. And also take out the handout sheet that is in your bulletin and we can begin. Now I'm going to be giving you the page number on where to turn to in the scripture. So by all means, grab one of these Bibles or raise your hand. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this makes it a lot easier to follow along. And even though we're only going through 12 verses today, these are heavy, heavy verses and you're going to have a hard time tracking with what I'm saying if you're not able to look at it in front of you. On the handout sheet in your bulletin, you will notice that we are in part four of a 23-part series through the book of Matthew as we're going through it line by line, verse by verse, and chapter by chapter. And I entitled today's message, The Upside Down Show, When Jesus Reveals the True State of the Kingdom of God. Now, as much as this is part four in a 23-part series of Matthew, we are launching today a three-part in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you're not, but I want to begin with a quote by John Stott about that very issue there at the top of your page, if you would look on there with me. John Stott said this, the Sermon on the Mount that we are about to study is probably the best known part of the teachings of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. I'm going to need your grace this morning because when I got back from vacation and I learned that I'm going to be teaching this very passage, the Beatitudes, I kind of went into a bit of a panic because I don't know what I'm talking about. You see, I have been a Christian the majority of my whole life. I've heard this taught a number of times, and yet I felt that every time I heard it taught, it was taught in some pat answer, some basic, some skip across the surface, lousy version. And I don't feel like I know what in the world it's talking about. So all of a sudden, i got to teach this stuff, and I don't know what I'm talking about. So I had to dive into massive research mode, and you should have seen my desk. It's got commentary books and dictionaries and all types of encyclopedias all over the place just trying to get a grip on what in the world Jesus was saying. Because I believe that if he's going to open up with something like this, on the longest discourse that we have, At all on the earth of Jesus' words, it's probably going to be pretty deep. And I've never heard it taught deep. I've never heard it taught to what I really believe hit the essence of what Jesus was saying. I believe this is revolutionary. That this was dramatic and that it was hard-hitting. And so I had to go dig for it. So I need your grace that I'm in a learning curve here. If you go through and go, gosh, we already knew all that stuff. He's late to the game. Or, gosh, he really missed this area. You're probably right. However, I'm still going to go long. just want you to know that. You're not getting out early. I got, I'm back now. So this whole guest speaker, oops, I wrapped early thing is not going to happen. So just sit in, lock in, and we're going to go for a really long time. Before you dive into the Sermon on the Mount, you got to know some background stuff on this. Where are we at in Jesus' ministry? Well, four weeks ago, I kicked off the series of Matthew by telling you a bit of the Christmas story. If you remember, the incarnation, God becoming man, and we talked about what an enormous deal that was. Then, three weeks ago, we had a gentleman come from William Jessup University, Dr. Beavers, he came in and he spoke on John the Baptist and his ministry. And then last week, Pastor Mark, the gentleman that just did the announcements, he led you through the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and talked a little bit about the early ministry. Now, that's exactly where we're at. And the reason why I point that out is the only thing that Matthew has really let us know about Jesus' public ministry is two things. Number one, he was enormously popular. Number two... He had one phrase that he started out with. That phrase was the same phrase that John the Baptist used, which was what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. If you don't understand that one phrase, this Sermon on the Mount won't make sense on where it launches from. It all begins with one simple phrase. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now, why was Jesus so intensely popular? Why? The Bible says crowds followed him, hordes followed him. People were so much around him, he couldn't even get a breather. He was constantly mobbed. Why? Was it because he was a great teacher? I don't think so. Was it because he was a nice guy? No, I don't think so. I think there's one primary reason why people flocked to him the way they did. 
He was a healer. And I don't care what you believe, what you teach, what you think. If you can fix my problem, I'm going to show up. And I believe he was mobbed because he met tangible needs. Well, what that means is that people flocked around Jesus for various motives. And just like church today, I don't believe the majority of motives were necessarily pure. I don't know why we come to church. Some of us come to church out of guilt. Some of us come to church out of hanging with our friends. But very rarely do we come to church for pure motives. However, he said this long discourse in the hearing, in my, in my opinion, in front of multitudes of people. This was not just for his inner circle. This was not just for the apostles. This is for everyone that could hear his voice and that wanted to hang out with Jesus. Therefore, it applies to every one of us, no matter why you are here. This message that I'm about to give is for you. Now then, what we must understand is that this is not the only recorded incident of the Sermon on the Mount. There's another one in in Luke. So we have Matthew and Luke. They're drastically different in some ways and very similar. Now, they're both similar in the sense that they both start out with beatitudes of some sort. And they both close with the whole, there's a man that built his house upon the rock and there's a man that built his house upon the sand. So the bookends are the same. They almost have relatively the same order, although Luke's is dramatically shorter. So you would probably assume in your mind they're talking about the same event. But when you start digging into it, you start questioning and realizing no wonder there's a big debate in scholarly circles as to whether or not they're talking about the same event and whether or not this was ever a sermon in the first place. Is this not merely a compilation of all that Jesus taught through his three years in ministry? There's arguments on both sides. Now, you would look at that and you'd go, well, I don't get it. Why are you telling me that, that they're different? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. In Luke's account, he says that Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount immediately after he called the 12 apostles. Now, was Matthew one of those guys? Yeah. Problem is, is in his account, he doesn't get called till chapter 9. Okay, so now we have a mix-up. And you go, well, Lance, you told me at the beginning Matthew doesn't write in chronology. He doesn't write in order. He's just kind of moving things around. Okay. In Luke's, it says the night before Jesus was in a mountainous region, but then he went to a level field or a plain where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says, no, he was on the side of a mountain. You go, okay, well, so what? Even if you're in a mountainous region, if you hit a plateau, it still fits both analogies. Okay, granted. However, consider this. In Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, there are 107 verses that make up its entirety. 29 of those appear in Luke. 47 of them are missing completely. And 34 of them are put in different stories in Luke. So when did they really happen? When did he really say it? For example, you may look and you say the salt and light thing. Well, Luke puts that in a totally different time. So when did Jesus say it? You go, well, Lance, it doesn't really matter. We're studying the words of Jesus. Okay, you're absolutely right. But because we engage so personally with the story of Jesus, we want to know, did he sit everyone down and preach for a really long time? Well, I read one commentary that was absolutely absurd. It said, clearly not, because in its current form, that would have taken hours, and Jesus would have never preached that long. (laughs) Give me a break. (laughs) Anybody remember the story of Paul preaching so long, the kid fell asleep, fell out the four-story window, and died? Anybody remember that one? Now that's a preacher. (laughs) See what I'm saying? I have only been preaching about 14 years, and I haven't lost anyone yet, but it's early. (laughs) And I will preach long enough to watch someone go in my midst. That's all I'm saying. Okay. (laughs) That's absurd. Of course, it could have been done in one sitting. Here's my opinion. Now, it does not mean it's fact. This is my opinion. I believe that indeed there were significant times at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he sat down enormous crowds of people and went through it from beginning to end, many different teachings on the kingdom, just like we have here. But I also believe that for three years he kept repeating himself because it was important. And I believe that Luke could have grabbed it on this time and said, you know, the one time when he said that, that it was so important is the day he healed this guy. Oh, and this one time when he said this, and I know we talked about it before, but he talked about it again, and it really hit home when this guy did this. So I believe that both are true, that indeed this was one large setting where he set the tone of his ministry, but then he broke it out and kept repeating pieces of it throughout his ministry. We all clear on that? All right, now then. 
Here's the other thing that we need to understand as far as background. Jesus coming on the scene breaks 400 years of silence for the Jews. You remember the last book in the Old Testament that we have in our order is the book of Malachi. Well, that was 400 years before this stuff started hitting. And that is rare for the Jewish people. The Jewish people, since the time of Abraham, have always had access to their God. He would have prophets tell them exactly what he wanted. He would begin to say whether he was pleased or displeased with them. And when they were afflicted, when they were hurt, when they were in pain, when they were in torment, their great and mighty king would come in and rescue them and be their comforter. But not for 400 years. Over four generations lived and died and lived and died. And it was silent. God was nowhere to be found. So this this stirred up within the heart of the Jewish people questions. Where's the Messiah? We know he's going to come. Nothing's happening. Is our God still around? Does he still love me? And one major question kept locking in every one of their hearts. And that was when the Messiah arrives as our king. Am I fit for his new kingdom? So Jesus comes on the scene and begins to teach the people about the kingdom of God. In those 400 years of silence, a group arose to answer for them all the questions of their heart. That group was the Pharisees. The Pharisees we don't know much about historically. A lot of the information we have about them is extremely biased and likely bogus. Or skewed. What we do know is one fact. They were known by the people to have authority for one key reason. They were strict adherence to the Torah. Now the Torah is the Old Testament law. They would follow it to the nth degree. As a matter of fact, they not only broke out what they thought it meant, but they added in traditions to try to fulfill it in the hundreds. So there were then now thousands of commands that they believed that they needed to follow, and they made their whole life about following it to its very exact detail. Now let me give you a quick side note on how to work in churches and how to work in Christian subculture, if you want to be an authority and be respected, or at least scare people scared of you, in a church context, just be the most mean, legalistic person you can be. I guarantee you, out of sheer guilt, everyone will bow down to you. You just have to walk around and go, I fast twice a week, what do you do? Immediately, everyone will give you an authority over them because they're not fasting twice a week. All you got to do is start talking about the things you do for God that are fancy and everyone else will back out of your way. Well, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They were very arrogant because they believed that they were jumping through all the necessary hoops to make God pleased with them. Unfortunately, their hearts were dead and they were just doing it as an outward act. Remember, Jesus only really had a problem with one group of people, and it was who? The Pharisees. As a matter of fact, I don't believe you can understand the Sermon on the Mount without reading Matthew's chapters 21 through 23. What happens in those chapters? Most of those we don't read a whole lot. In those chapters is the place where Jesus says, Woe to the Pharisees! You are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're looking clean and nice. And on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. It's almost like Jesus rips off the gloves and dives at the jugular of the Pharisee leaders. And he begins to tear them apart and say, you've got it wrong. Stop telling my people the wrong thing. You got it upside down. You're looking at it wrong and you're screwing up my people. Knock it off. I believe this. Sermon on the Mount is how it needs to be seen. And Jesus does much in reaction to them. As a matter of fact, to get the flavor of what I'm talking about, Jesus, during those chapters, told a parable. He said two guys went to temple. One of them was a Pharisee. The other one was, kind of funny that Matthew wrote it, was a tax collector. Of course, is what Matthew did. And sure enough, these two guys go to temple, and the Pharisee comes up with his head up, His hand's outstretched, and he's very proud to be in temple, and he says, God, I'm so glad I'm not like the rest of the losers. (laughs) Obviously, I'm pleasing to you. Here's tons of cash. I'm out. He's gone. 
Then in comes tax collector guy, can't even lift his head up, keeps his head down because he's so ashamed because he knows who he is. He knows what he's done. He knows what he's done with what God gave him. He keeps his head down. He says, I'm not even supposed to be here, Lord, but I humbly come before your presence and I give you what I have. Forgive me. Jesus said, who do you think went home justified? It wasn't the Pharisee. Right after that story, he grabs a little kid, brings him in front of all the Pharisees and all the teachers of the law, and he said, unless you become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 5.20, where we're about to study, is the essence, in my opinion, of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. This is now his view in dramatic contrast to what the Jews have been taught for the last couple hundreds of years. So this is very, very significant. These are Jesus' standards of the kingdom. And that is what we're about to study. Unfortunately, we don't understand it. We have been led astray in it. And we're completely screwed up in our view of it. Therefore, the fill in the blank in front of you is this. The gateway to understanding the kingdom may be merely new lenses. The gateway to understanding the kingdom may be merely new lenses. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Page 683 in the Bible's handed to you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, if you haven't turned there already. Page 683 in the Bible's handed to you. And I'm just going to read the first two verses and then we will begin to tear it apart this morning and see what God has for us. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 begins like this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying... Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts that we can receive what we would hear? Would you open up our ears and our eyes to understand what you're saying Would you open up our spirit, for we believe that that which is eternal can only be spiritually discerned, and we're going to need your help on this one. Jesus, you're about to blow our minds, and we're going to need some help putting the pieces back together. Be with us, in Jesus' name, amen. In this simple intro of verses 1 and 2, there are three key elements that perhaps you missed. Why do I say that? Because I missed them. It begins like this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. You just missed two of them. Let me make a quick statement. Why did it have to record that he's on a mountainside? Who cares? Maybe it has significance. The last major mountain that was talked about in Scripture that we kind of have fresh in our minds was a mountain by the name of Sinai. Anybody know where Mount Sinai is? is in scripture it's around the exodus region what happened you guys remember what that mountain looked like it was the thundering fire smoke filled mountain that moses got a chance to walk up into and talk with god face to face what did he give moses on mount sinai the law of god now jesus in the new covenant stands upon a mountain again and says let me let you know what i meant It says that he came up on a mountainside and he sat down and then he began to teach them saying, ah, those are two interesting phrases. Number one, who do we, why do we care if he sat down? I'm sure Jesus sat down a lot. Why did they have to mention that? Well, because he's a rabbi. And that is slightly significant. In general, rabbis were roving teachers. They would move around a lot. And because people kind of hovered around them 24 hours a day, they kind of did a lot in transit. For example, if you think about Jesus, how many times he was walking through the marketplace. Remember when the lady grabbed the hem of his garment and they said, there's so many people around you. How do you even know that somebody touched you? We've been following you the whole time. And Jesus was talking as he walked. He would make statements about things they passed. As he walked with his disciples, he saw a fig tree. Do you remember that? And he pointed out something about the fig tree and they kept moving. And then he would, as he walked through, he would say, do you see that mountain over there? If you have the faith, you can move mountains. And then he would talk about the millstone being tied around their neck because in that city is where they cut out the millstones. And so he would point these things out on his travels. 
However, whenever a rabbi wanted to say, all right, kids, we're going to break it down pretty serious now. Take out your notebooks. Let's take some notes. He would what? Sit down. That meant this is not just general concepts about life. Now I'm talking about some serious teaching that I need you to soak in for a second. Everybody sit down. And he would sit down. As a matter of fact, that is emphasized even more on the phrase he began to teach them. In our Bible, our translation, it sounds kind of wimpy. In the Greek, it's a very specific phrase. It says, and he opened his mouth and began to speak to them. That little phrase is used in the Bible and in other literature quite a bit. And every time it happens, it means, and the guy was about to say something really important. Now, with that type of intro, you must understand that what is about to come next is extraordinary. And he begins with the Beatitudes. As I told you, I've never understood the Beatitudes. I didn't even know what Beatitude meant. That's how basic I am in that way. What does Beatitude mean? It means a whole bunch of phrases that start out with blessed are or blessed be. That's it. There's your whole definition. It's a bunch of statements that say it that way. Now, lest you think that it's super Christian-y, it's not a Christian thing. It's not even a Jewish thing. It's a secular thing. It's just a way of writing. As a matter of fact, more secular writers wrote Beatitudes than religious writers. We seem to make it somehow some big Christian thing. It's not. It's a manner of writing. And what it's supposed to be is a statement of going, gosh, I'm totally envious of you because you are so blessed you got this. That's actually what a phrase means. And so in the secular world, they would just write letters to each other and they would list all the things that they were envious of. They'd go type in old Greek language. Dude, you got a beamer. I'm jealous. That's a beatitude. It means, wow, you're fortunate. I wish I was in your place. That's actually what these are. So when you look at them, there's a couple of things you need to understand. Number one, the word blessed is the wrong word. There is a word in Greek for blessed, eulogitos. That's not this one. As a matter of fact, it's the wrong word. It's makarios. Makarios does not mean blessed in Greek. It means something we don't have a word for. You guys understand that when you're translating from one language to another, there's certain words that don't translate super well. This is one of those. As a matter of fact, it could mean happy. Like, man, aren't you pumped that you have this? It could mean happy, but the problem is you can be blessed, but not really realize it and you don't feel good about it. So actually happy doesn't work. You could say, wow, you are so fortunate to have that, but that implies luck. You could say a bunch of other things, but all of them fall short. The best one we have is congratulations. I'm totally jealous that you are. That's a beatitude. So that's what we're about to read. So doesn't it make it all that much more odd when you find out what he's congratulating them for? Look at this. We begin with the first that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word for poor, and there are two major words in Greek for poor. One is you lack something. The other one is this word. It means absolute, abject poverty beaten down to your knees and destitute. It's an extremely strong word. It means you've been demolished and you have nothing left at all. Congratulations. For you have been demolished in what sense? In your spirit. What's your spirit? It's the part of you that hopes for tomorrow. It's a part of you that tries to stay alive. It's the part of you that yearns. In that deepest place of you, you have been crushed and you have nothing left. Congratulations. What an odd phrase. Why would he say that? Why would Jesus begin by talking about being crushed? Do you remember what I told you that in 400 years of silence... The Jews were pretty used to their king coming in and bringing them comfort, but he was silent in all their pain. Jesus rolls into town and he says, the first, first people I want to talk to are those of you that are hurting. I'm here. 
He talks to the wounded and afflicted first. And he says, congratulations. Why? It says that their blessing is what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why is that? In the Greek, it means demolished. But in the Hebrew, the Hebrews can't do anything without bringing God into the mix. So everything for a Hebrew is if you are reduced to ashes, God's somehow going to do something about it. So there's an expectation lingering under the phrase, which is congratulations for being demolished because now God is about to move. Congratulations are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are the men who are utterly helpless and therefore can do nothing at the end of their rope. But what? Put their whole trust in God. Remember what I told you that everything falls on the foundation of what phrase? Repent. So Jesus said, so you've been reduced to ashes. Good, now we can start. And you say, that's just rude. Really? Or is it factual? For example, Jesus said to them, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So unless you recognize yourself as a sinner, we have nothing to talk about. For the sick need a doctor, not the healthy. So if you think you're healthy, I didn't come for you. So why are they to be congratulated? Because they're the only ones that have a Messiah waiting for them. Everyone else doesn't have a Messiah on this bus. You might need to wait for the next one, and I'm not so sure it's going to show up. This is a factual statement. Congratulations for having nothing and being absolutely destitute. For now we're about to start. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you get the kingdom of heaven because you are sold out in obedience. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me ask you this. You get the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? According to Jesus, in his famous prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules. So when you are obedient to God, you are making his kingdom present now. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, you're operating as if God's in charge. When you have come to the end of your rope and been reduced to absolute nothingness, you have but no option except to do it God's way. Congratulations. You've now entered the kingdom. Number two. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. This word doesn't mean cry. It means weep at the very depth of your soul. Weep as if you have lost a loved one. Cry from the inside out at the deepest place of you where you can cry no more. The tears are gone, but the sorrow is still raging. That is who mourns here. It's the opposite of pride. It's the realization of the first one. Not only have you been reduced to nothingness, but now you realize how messed up you really are. You now realize that you are destitute. Before you were playing games, before you were arrogant, before you were cocky, now you have nothing to be arrogant about. And now you see your condition. You see what you've become. You see what you've done with what God has given you. And it's absolutely destroyed you. And you begin to weep over it. That is known as the sorrow that leads to repentance. Congratulations. You get it now. Hmm. Why are they congratulated? Because in the Hebrew mindset, wherever there is a vacuum, God comes into play. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. At that place of destitute, crying out for help, God shows up. The third one. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now understand there are three words in Greek that speak of what meek means. But preotes, the word of meekness, can pretty much be summed up like this. 
humbleness has entered into your life because in realizing that you are destitute in your sorrow for what has occurred, you have now taken all the power that you have in your life and you have locked it down and shoved it down in humility to sit at the feet of the master and say, I bring nothing to the table. Please tell me how to live. Congratulations that you have brought it all down and you sit to learn. It's a teachable spirit. You guys remember the story of Mary and Martha, right? Now, I have never sweated Martha for what she did. I feel like, man, she at least stepped up. Because you guys, here's how the story goes. Jesus is cruising through Bethany and he rolls into Mary and Martha's house. And when you're a good host or hostess, what do you do when someone comes to visit? You provide for them. So Martha immediately gets to work and she's in the kitchen and she's fixing food for him. She ends up getting rebuked for it. And you're kind of like, I don't get it. That was kind of rude, Jesus. Because there's Mary doing nothing, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's doing all the work. But what if you're not strong enough to make a meal? What if you realize meals mean nothing because you are a loser? What if you can't even stand up when Jesus walks in your house and all you can do is sit at his feet and say, please make me whole? I don't know what we're eating. I don't care right now because I don't know if I'm going to make it through the next moment of my life. I can't think about food right now. The Messiah is sitting in front of me and I can't move. Nothing else matters right now. Just tell me that I'm okay. Tell me that you will heal me. Can you imagine that the rebuke to Martha went something like this? Martha, I don't think you get it. Why are we worried about that right now? Mary seems to understand that she doesn't have the power to stand up. You don't seem to have any problem running around. Why is that? Do you not get it? Do you not get what you don't have and what I do have? Mary can't move. That is this phrase. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they will inherit the earth. In what way will they inherit the earth? Well, you want to talk about a fancy way spiritually or I guess proverbially. You inherit the earth merely by the idea that once you start doing it Jesus' way and sit at his feet, he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, if you come to me and do it my way, we don't stress about any of that stuff. We don't care about any of that stuff. It's not a big deal. You've got to let go of everything, he said. The sin that so easily entangles all this stuff that we're stressing about. All that stuff doesn't matter. Come hang out with me and I will give you rest for your soul. That place, you begin to inherit the earth because your mind is re-racked at the feet of Jesus and all of a sudden you begin to get more out of life here. Now you want to talk about spiritually in future tense. When you are tied to Jesus, Jesus owns everything, including this world, and you become an heir along with Jesus Christ and you inherit the world literally. Number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There are two words for hunger in Greek. The first says, gosh, that looks really good. Can I have a bite of that? I'm hungry. The other one says, a bite's not going to cut it. I need everything. That's this word. It's an unquenchable craving. I'm going to die without it. I must have all of it. I must fully consume Blessed are you. Congratulations when you are consumed with seeking after the righteousness of God. What is righteousness? It's being perfect in the eyes of God. It's doing everything excellent to a T. Congratulations when you finally get that you bring nothing to the table and you need Jesus to bring everything to the table. And what He brings to the table is so amazing, so glorious, so complete, so full in righteousness that you crave for it and crave for it and make no mistake. It does not say past tense. It does not say at one time you hungered and thirsted for righteousness for it is a continual action into the future. 
which means every day, every moment after you're saved. You hunger, you thirst, you crave, you chase after. Please be my righteousness, Jesus, for I have nothing but filthy rags. It's what gets you near the cross and what keeps you near the cross. You can't get too far away from the cross when you pant for streams of water, the Old Testament says. Because you can never be too far away from your water source or you'll die. Now those first four character overhauls lead now to the final four that are emanations, that are outpourings, that are outworkings, that become the hallmark of the Christ follower. It's what we will look like if the first four have taken hold. Number four, number five. Blessed are what? The merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The phrase in context in Greek seems to suggest it's getting into the skin of someone else that has harmed you. Seeing it from their point of view, diving in so their eyes become your eyes, that you begin to know that they too are a man just like you. And even though they have done which was wicked, you know that you are capable of the very same. You dive in and see it from their perspective, so the harm that they have done for you, you can't help but extend mercy towards. After what God has done for you and showering his mercy upon you, it's very similar to that parable that Jesus told that he said there was a man who owed a debt that he could not pay off in his whole life. And he gave that man freedom. And yet that man went out and what began to choke the man that owed him a little. And the man, the king was livid. He said, how could you live like that? How could you act like that? You know what I forgave you. How in the world are you going to sweat the people, the small stuff? That is this. Congratulations when you get it and you start acting in a merciful fashion because you can't act another way and you will constantly be showered with mercy. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The word pure in Greek is katharos. It means to be cleansed and thus made pure. That the impure is removed by a process. And therefore all that is left is purity. It's the idea of burning the metals and scooping off the junk. That same concept. He said congratulations. When life, when the Holy Spirit has slammed you over and over against the rocks. That pain and trial and tribulation and persecution has heated up your life and burned you so many times that all that which is evil has been risen to the surface. And Jesus begins to scoop it away. Congratulations. Now you can see God. Now it's interesting because Luke's version of the Beatitudes is dramatically different in tone. Luke says stuff like this. Blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled. And he doesn't seem to suggest any spiritualization at all. It's like Matthew makes it all Christian-y. And then Luke just drops the bomb and goes, It's a good thing you're hungry. It's a good thing you're poor. It's a good thing life's hard. It's a good thing it's very practical. And you go, that's totally different than this. Really? Let me ask you a question. If you go to the most expensive community in our region, the most expensive gated community, and then you go to the slum cities of Rio de Janeiro, what has greater community? Who knows their neighbors better? Now then, Jesus said it's easier for what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle than what? A rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What kept the rich young ruler out of Jesus' discipleship crew? But his money. Luke's point is simply this. All the stuff you don't have has removed another obstacle from chasing after Jesus. All the affliction, all the pain, all the beat down, all the horrible things of your life have at least served to this good. They made it easier. Who has a harder time giving up everything for Jesus, the poor man or the rich man? Then is it not factual that Luke would say, I don't care what you want to call it, but God's not going to let your hardship be for nothing. Congratulations. 
Because the harder your life is, the more you want heaven. The nicer your life is, the more you don't care. Practical? We pick up number six. Excuse me, number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. After you have been reconciled in your terrible condition as a rebel against God, as one that has nailed him to the cross, as one who does not care about him, in that very state of rejection, God extended peace to you through Jesus Christ. As He has united the sinner and the almighty, perfect and holy God, once that is done in your life, how could you not then live by wanting the same for others? Why would you not then go and seek to make peace between man and man and woman and woman? Why then would you not seek to be the bridge and say, come see Jesus because He can get you to the Father? How could you not want to be a peacemaker? One of my favorite phrases I found in a commentary was peacemakers seek to want to put anointing oil over troubled waters. And the idea is it makes it a little heavier and it weighs down the waves and calms and makes it soothing. Is that you? As a Christian, do you walk through and calm the waves in the troubled spirits of those around you? Do you restore relationships? Do you restore men to God? For that is what a Christian does. Every Christian. We pick it up on the last one, the eighth of the eight. And you would hope that it would end with some super encouraging, everything's going to be super great. And it's not. The eighth is a little bit different. It's not quite as direct, but it's longer. It says this. Congratulations on those of you who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, and Luke would add, jump for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Congratulations. What? What are you talking about? I had to go look this up in a commentary because I'm not a guy that likes persecution. I am not that mature. The only thing I got is I got to go into like the James mode where you're like persecution leads to something and then it leads to something and then I'm a better person. Yay, God. Okay, I'm not all that hot on that stuff. So I had to go look up somebody else who said, let me give you five reasons why persecution is a blessing. Number one, you have an opportunity to show your loyalty to Christ. When all the rest of your life, no one cares if you're loyal to God. They don't know. You could be playing the game. You could be playing the church game, the Christian game. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. But when a gun, bam, is locked on your head, everybody knows the game is over. Right then, right there, everybody looks at you and they said, what are you going to do? And at that one moment, everything is hushed and people care. And there you display your loyalty to Christ for real. Number two, you walk the same road as the martyrs walked. And right there, boom, in the hall of faith is your name. And at that moment, you join quite a group of folks that have walked before you. People burned at the stake, flayed alive, drawn and quartered, dragged through the streets, sawn in half while they are still screaming. Those people that died for Jesus' sake, you joined that crew and you became one of them. You see, something that has been lost in America in modern day, certainly in my life, is solidarity. I've been raised as an individual autonomous man to where you guys could all go, hey, we're all going to go fight so-and-so. And I'd be like, see ya. I don't care what you guys do. I don't need to be part of the team. But in Jesus' day, in the ancient world, being part of the team was an honor. There was an honor in going to war together, to live together, to die together, to be a brotherhood. To say that I will go where my brothers go, and when they go in the darkness, I will march with them. And if they die, I die, for we are together. That has been lost. But that is an honor when all of a sudden the angels in heaven stop 
take a breath and go, wow, I never did that. And they're amazed. Number four, you were there at a momentous point in history when the kingdom of darkness clashed against the kingdom of light. And right there, the supernatural forces collided in you. And it went Jesus against the enemy. And right there in your spirit, a decision had to be made. And you were punished for His name. And number five, when you are punished for His sake, Jesus is never more near. You guys remember the story in Daniel about three young Hebrew boys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would not bow down to an idol because they believed in the one true Yahweh God. And they said, absolutely not. And they said, fine, we'll burn you alive. And they threw them into the fiery furnace. And what was the next question? Hey, guys, didn't we throw in three? Why do I see four? And here comes Jesus walking in the flames. Guys, what's up? What are we doing? Well, we're supposed to be burning to death. What are you doing? Well, I don't know. I guess we're not burning to death today, huh? Not feeling hot. There was Jesus present. Now, let me make a disclaimer on this, just to get in your face a bit. There's two phrases in here you need to figure out. The first one says, blessed are you if you're persecuted because of righteousness. And the second one says, blessed when people insult you because of me. Why am I saying that? Because almost every Christian I know uses this as a shield for every bad thing that happens in their life. And I'm tired of Jesus' name being drug in where it doesn't need to be drug in. Oh my gosh, I'm being persecuted at work. Oh my gosh, I got fired because I'm a Christian. You got fired because you're lousy at your job. Oh, I'm persecuted. I got a ticket. You got a ticket because you're a lousy driver. It's not persecution if you're an idiot. You understand what I'm saying? Please don't bring Jesus into it. Now then, if indeed it is due to directly because you are pursuing Christ, you are pursuing righteousness, and that irritates the world, then yes, it's persecution. And yes, if it's ostracism, and they kick you out, and they don't want you a part of their team because you are different than them, then yes, it's persecution. But if it's because you're doing something wrong, it's not persecution. That's probably the correction of God. He closes with this challenge. He said, if you are going to walk like me, please be like me. Otherwise, we're wasting our time. You are the salt of the earth. In other words, you are valuable. You are the flavoring of the world. You are the preservative. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You go, I don't get that. How does that work? One commentary said that the majority of their salt in that region was taken from the Dead Sea, which was really not true salt. It was salt and other junk mixed with it. When you take out the salt part of it, it's just dirt. And if that would dampness or whatever would pull it out, it's called insipid, and it would pull it out and the salt would be useless. And that's this phrase. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. What's Jesus' point? Guys, you're my disciples. Go out and do what I do. If you don't do what I do, why are we here? It's kind of a waste. You are the light of the world. That's quite an honor for Jesus called himself that in John 8, 12. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. I close with a summary of the Beatitudes of what we've just heard. Congratulations when you are reduced to nothingness, for only then can God begin. Congratulations when you recognize your destituteness and you mourn over your sin and that sorrow leads you to cry out to God for forgiveness. Because only then will you be saved. Congratulations for those of you that get it. And in that humility, sit at the feet of Jesus and say, teach me, heal me, that I may live. Congratulations, those of you that crave insatiably for the righteousness that only Jesus can provide and quit trying to think that you're something that you're not.
Congratulations for those of you that have tasted of mercy that go about and get into other people's shoes and understand them and extend mercy to them no matter how evil they may seem. Congratulations to those in their new spiritual nature who understand that the evil in them is going to get burned out one way or another and you enjoy and engage with the process of being purified for you will see God. Congratulations for those that have felt the peace of God and have now gone into the world to make sure that peace extends to someone other than yourself. And congratulations when you're persecuted because of Jesus, because you're one of us. Revolutionary. Indeed. Is that the Pharisee way of doing things? Quite the opposite. The reason why I believe that is so important is I believe that unless those first four have ever occurred in your heart, in whatever fashion that looks like, you have not yet begun with Jesus. And there is no new life. There is no healing without first wounding. There is no righteousness without first an understanding of sin. There's no longing for Jesus until you understand that you need Him. And if you tried to bypass the process by making Jesus some add-on to your life to where now suddenly you not only have a really cool marriage and a really cool job, but now you get to do the church thing, you missed the starting gate. It's a really narrow gate. I don't know if you've seen the path, but it's pretty small. You might have missed it on the way in. I suggest you back up and go check it out. This is so convicting to me because I grew up and I've never known a world where God was not. Have I mourned over my sin? I will tell you this. I don't today the way I should. Am I convicted? Indeed. I give you this message to let you wrestle with it through this whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be like this, guys. It's rough. But is there another way? We only had one Messiah show up. No one else came. What are you going to do with him? Please don't leave without engaging with him. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love in sending your Son and sending the message by which we might receive eternal life. That we believe that there must be an understanding of that which we lack in order to have you fill us up. And Father, if we miss that, would you draw us back to that very place as we kneel at the foot of the cross? Jesus, would you make us whole and make us true? In Jesus' name, amen.